Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Well, I'm excited to continue our teaching through the book of Acts. Do you know we're about halfway through? Can you believe it? You're thinking, how is, how is it going to be done by June if you started in September? You just watch. <laughs> Acts, if you're unfamiliar, is this uh, first kind of history of the earliest believers, earliest followers of Jesus. It picks up uh, right after the resurrection of Jesus where he gives a promise to his followers that they are to wait because the Holy Spirit is going to come. God's going to come and live in them. And when he does, he's going to fill them with power. And as a result of that power, they're going to be witnesses to Jesus, who is now risen again from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father, enthroned as king. They're going to be witnesses to him right in their hometown and then out to the rest of the world. And we've been watching this story unfold, and it's been great. There's been ups and downs. There's been persecution, but there's been incredible growth. As the good news of Jesus goes out, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and begins to include people who would never have been considered included. Now we see Samaritans coming in and Ethiopians coming in. And then all of a sudden, just a few weeks ago, we saw how the good news of Jesus now came out to the Gentiles, out to all of those of us who aren't of Jewish heritage and and how the good news of Jesus includes everybody, which is a bit of a surprise to everybody. And we saw that begin to unfold. It was, it, was, it was great. So we're continuing with our story. We're in Acts chapter 12. I don't know about you. I alluded to it during our worship uh, time. But I don't know about you, but when I'm feeling uh, stressed or things are going on or there's struggle going on in my life, or when I'm talking to many of you, when there's something going on, there's a, a family crisis of some kind, a health crisis, um, when there's concern about a, a relationship that's, that's been fractured, and how do I deal with that? When, when there's uh, faith doubts and you're wrestling with who is God and what is the church and what about the Bible and all the questions that we can have. Um, when we're in those kinds of conversations, what's really helpful to me personally, but helpful as we talk, is where we kind of try to clear away all the, all the, the brush, you know, all the, all the things that can get in the way or it can muddle us, not that they aren't important, but we kind of clear them aside and we, we ask, well, what do we know is really true? Like, what's, what can we be sure of? There's a lot of things you know. We don't know. There's a lot of things we can't really say with certainty. But what can we say with certainty? What can we be sure of? And in those times of confusion or struggle, we got to drill down to bedrock and get clear on what we know is true. And the story today in Acts helps us do that. And so we're going to go through this story in Acts chapter 12, and uh, we're going to try to uncover in this story what are some things that we got to know when trouble, when trouble comes. Acts chapter 12, uh, there's some Bibles scattered around in the seats. You can look it up. Uh, you might have brought one, which is great. You also may have an app on your phone. Or if you've never downloaded a Bible app to your phone, can I make a recommendation? version. How many of you have Uversion app on your phone? Yeah. It is a great Bible app. There's lots of Bible reading plans. There's lots of different translations. And it is, um, there's about, I don't know how many staff work on this app. 25 staff, I think. 
And it's all given to us free by a monster, huge covenant church down in, uh, in the States. But they offer it all for free, and it's just an incredible resource. So I encourage you to download the YouVersion app. Use it as your regular reading. It's always great to have the Bible with you wherever you go on your phone. So there you go. But you can also just listen, because I'm going to read it through. Acts chapter 12, here we are. I can find it. All right. So the gospel is going out, and, and, and Daniel led us uh, last week to see how uh, things are starting to spread, and uh, all the story is involved. And here we go. It's about this time, about that time, that King Herod arrested some of those who belong to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, just a little pause. Herod is a guy who shows up, or the name Herod shows up quite a bit in the um, in the story. Do you remember um, the wicked king who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby? What was his name? Eh, oh, Herod. Not the same guy. But they're related. Bloodthirstiness got to run in that family. Reunions were fun. Anyway, so um, this is actually like the uh, grandson and... Uh, yeah, grandson. But there's, there's other Herods that pop up. There'll be another Herod later on in Acts that Paul uh, is in front of when he's tried. And that's uh, another one. So, but they're all part of the same, same um, happy bunch. Here we are. This is King Herod. He decides to arrest some who belong to the church and tend to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. I'm not going to pause too often. I'll try not to. But I do need to explain who this guy is because a little later on in Acts, you're going to find a James who's like leading the church in Jerusalem. And you're going to think, I thought they lost his head. Well, guess what? James was a popular boy's name then too. And so, just James is in the Gospels when you have James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, who were early followers of Jesus. This is one of those brothers. This is not the James we're going to see later in Acts who's actually a half-brother of Jesus himself. That half-brother of Jesus himself wasn't one of the twelve, although he became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Anyway, so this James gets put to death with the sword. When Herod saw that this met with approval among the Jews, among the uh, religious uh, group that's been opposing the church, they're all Jews in Jerusalem, but you know, um, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of soldiers, four squads of four soldiers each. There's a lot of soldiers put on this one Peter dude, right? Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So just put this in your mind. Peter, James has been put to death by the sword, and now Peter's been put in prison on what weekend? Passover weekend, which was the same weekend that Jesus was also arrested and then died, right? So, you know, there's there's a lot of resonance here that you don't want to have if you're the guy who goes in after the guy who lost his head. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. What do you think their expectations were of what was going to happen? It wasn't good. But they were praying, praying for Peter. Well, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Notice how careful Luke is to tell us how guarded he was. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and the light shone uh, in the cell. 
He struck Peter in the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading out of the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know, without a doubt, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who's also called Mark. We'll see him later in Acts, but he's the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. Went to his mom's house, where many people had gathered and were praying. Remember what they're praying for? They're praying for what? Rescue. They're praying for Peter. They're hoping something happens. Now, now the interesting thing about, about this story is, Peter's been in jail before. In the story of Acts. Do you know what happened the other times he was put in jail? Angels sprung him. Like he's been a jail, he's been like broke out of jail before, several times. But when it happens here, he was not expecting it, clearly. Even when it was happening, he didn't think it was happening. And then after it had happened, he wasn't sure, you know. So he now shows up at the house of the people who are praying earnestly to God for what? For a miracle, for God to do something, for to change, because they've already lost James and they know what's going to happen to Peter. And so they're praying. Man, they're praying with faith. They're believing, God, you've got to do something. So Peter shows up at the door. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Imagine how Peter's feeling at that moment. Say, like, I just got out of prison. I kind of want to stand out here on the street because they're going to be looking for me soon. But she just disappears. It gets worse. You're out of your mind, they told her. And she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be his angel. I love that. These people are praying in faith. (laughs) Earnestly. That God would answer their prayer. And when he does, what is their response? You're crazy. And then when they finally think, well, maybe she's on to something because Rhoda doesn't normally, you know, do the crazy thing. Then their immediate jump isn't, well, it must be Peter. It's, well, it must be his angel. And it alludes to a belief that people had then, uh, but maybe even today, the idea that immediately following someone's death, there can be uh, appearances or, or, or even a, a sense that they're present. And they, they figured, oh, it's, it's, his, it's his angel or it's his ghost. It's, you know, he's, he's out the door sort of saying goodbye. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned them with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, not the one who lost his head, the other James, and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning... There was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Because, you know, if you were the soldier sleeping next to this guy, walked to this guy 
in a cell that's locked with guys outside, you would be a bit confused when you woke up to empty shackles between you. You would also have a deep sense of doom. Because Herod's not happy. After Herod had made a thorough search, had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Well, then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling, quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That's a, a, another set of cities just up the coast. He had been quarreling with them. And they now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. They want this guy to be happy with them. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Uh, Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian, writes about the same event. He said that Herod had this beautiful silver robe on that was so silvery and shimmery that when the sun caught it, he shone in the light. And what we hear in Acts is what Josephus also said. The people said, they looked at him, they heard him, they said, this is the voice of a god, not a mere mortal. Perhaps flattering him a little, because what do they want? Food. And, yeah. But, you know, boost our rating here. Immediately, though, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And he was eaten by worms and died. Josephus actually says the same thing. It's an interesting one of these examples where another uh, historian at the same time confers with that, that he literally was up there and Josephus makes the same connection. The people are calling him a god, extolling him as a god, and immediately it's like Herod goes like this and he sits down and they carry him off and he dies five days later from something inside of him. Ew. But, David said it last week, watch for those buts in the Bible. But, the word of God continued to increase and spread. What a great story. (laughs) What a great story. Uh, John Stott, a great commentator from the last century, he said, this this chapter 12 is amazing. It starts with, with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. And it ends with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. And and Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to see how this all rolls out. Well, I got a lot of questions from this story, though. A lot of questions were raised from me. But I'd love to hear from you if there's some questions that came to you as you heard this story this morning. Maybe you're quite familiar with the story. What are some of the questions that this story raises for you? Feel free to shout them out. What kind of questions does it raise for you? Pardon me? It's certainly not fair to the guards. Is there a question in there, Peter? (laughs) Okay. Any questions? Questions this raises for you? It's always good when you hear a story or, or you read something in Scripture to, 
to say, what, what are the questions this raises? Because often it's those questions that you raise that can lead you more deeply into understanding the story. Sherry. Bang. First question I had. How is it that James, you know, down the stairs. And then Peter, there's this marvelous, amazingly detailed, miraculous rescue. What is with that? Talk about unfair. How would, how would the families of these people think? Man, I'm sorry about James. But, whew, Peter, you know. But it raises questions, doesn't it? Raises questions about like what is going on? Like, is it is it is it? Did, did God love Peter more? I mean, what does it do? We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna chase that one down a little bit. Other other questions this this story raises for you. Yeah. Oh, Cameron. Yeah, we don't know that. We, what we know is it was pretty immediate. Conferred, but not only what Luke says, but also what Josephus says. And, and it's interesting how quickly he was, and, and they both, um, they both interpreted that as, as God's judgment. Um, so it raises the question though, um, this story does raise a question about evil, about judgment. It raises the question of like, how does that work? Um, you know, we see kind of this happen in, to, to Herod, and, and, and Luke wants us to see it in a certain way. But how, do, how does that impact the way we think about evil today? Or we think about wicked, awful people who do awful things. Like how, do we, how do we process that? Where's God involved? And what about those people who do awful things, but they don't seem to, you know, they don't die from worms. They keep living on and doing great. Right? So those, it raises questions like that. I think it raises questions, uh, this story raises questions about prayer. Maybe they forgot to pray for James, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> Talk about a miss. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. But it raises questions about prayer. Like, how does that work? And, like, is it that God was responding to their prayer? Is it God already did it and then confirmed their prayer? What is going on with prayer? And then, of course, it raises this, the broad question of how do we, how do we to understand God's God's kingdom, this promise of witness that he's given to the church, how are we to understand it in the midst of, of, of difficulty, of persecution, of hard times? How are we to understand? There's probably more questions, but those were some of the questions um, that, that were raised for me. So let's, let's walk through it. When we face troubles, I think there's at least five things we got to know. And if you've had many conversations with me, if you've had been struggling in an area of your life, you'll, you'll notice that I... I believe that they're in the story. I don't think I read them in. Um, but, oh, you know, maybe. Uh, but probably not. Uh, they're in the story, and we'll see them emerge a bit. But these are very similar things that we remind ourselves of when we talk through difficulty, when we, when we meet and try to get down to the bedrock of what's really true. So let's go through them. Let's go through them uh, fairly quickly. The first thing we have to know touches on the question that you raised, Sherry, and that is this that God's love is not determined by our circumstances. Like, it's not as though, oh, look at that. Well, we know who Jesus loved more. James, because he wanted him to be with him. No. Immediately, 
it can raise that question of like, that seems unfair. Like, how come James lost his head and Peter didn't? And, and we carry that. I cannot tell you how many times I hear it from others that because something difficult is happening in my life or in the life of my family, they begin to question whether God loves them or not. Whether God thinks well of them. Whether God has abandoned them. Because difficulties raise that question. Is God really for me? Is, is He really in this? Or has He just walked off? I've had a lot of difficult conversations with someone that I love very dearly lately who feels a deep sense that God has abandoned him at his time of need because something very difficult happened. It is interpreted directly as God walked away from me and so I'm walking away from him because of that difficulty and that circumstance. And so when we are experiencing a, a wrestling or a struggle, there's whether it is a health crisis or whether it's overt you know, persecution that we're experiencing or whether some kind of evil is triumphing, we have to remember that God's love is not determined on whether or not we had a good day. It's not determined on whether or not we live or die. I've had many conversations with um, our dear brother Bill about exactly that. It's not that God suddenly loved Bill more because his health's coming back. That's not true. God's love for Bill doesn't change whether he lives or dies. It doesn't change whether you live or die. It doesn't. Because we know that the love of God was established on the cross by Jesus Christ. And that's what we always look to. So that we can experience difficulty when we say, but that, this event, is what determines God's love for me. Not whether or not Things are going well for me at this particular time. Not whether or not things are good or things are bad. God's love doesn't go up and down like a roller coaster depending on our circumstances. You know, we've had as a family, you know this, um, lots of opportunity to talk about this particular struggle because of Tenille's health. To wrestle through that. And I know that many of you have had that, that kind of experience, whether it's health or something else, to wrestle through. Like, is it, am I experiencing this because of, of, of something that I've done wrong? Am I experiencing this because uh, uh, you know, God sort of whatever doesn't care as much? And you wrestle through those why questions. And when you do, you've got to get clear on what's true. And we have to remember that those things are not, are not indicators of God's love for us. Conversely, just because things are going well for you, that's also not a sign that God loves you more. And this is a tricky one because we often want to attribute, um, oh, this is because this is uh, whatever. God loves me. Uh, and, 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 or, or this is a sign of blessing. Look, obviously we want to be grateful for what we have. But hidden in that can be a very tricky business of, of interpreting the good things as expressions of God's love, when the truth is, there's people, faithful, loved people, who experience very difficult things. And if we're constantly interpreting the good things around us, because, well, that's because God loves me, it's like, eh. Yeah, He loves you, but I'm not sure that's an expression of that. That might be because of where you live. You know? It might be because you, you, you were in a family that you had. I mean, that might be because... You have better genetics. I don't know. And all those things are blessings. Don't get me wrong. But we can very easily tip the scale to think, 
oh, all those good things are a sign of God's love, therefore all those bad things are what? Not? And so we have to be really, really clear that God's love doesn't go up and down based on life or death or struggle or triumph. His love is established on the cross by Jesus. There's a song we've been singing around here more and more by City of Light called Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. Love it. Maybe should have sang it this morning. But there's one line in there that I, I, I hold on to. It says, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. And I think that's really important that we remember this is where we attach our assuredness, our surety. Surety. What's the word I'm looking for? This is where we attach our confidence. That God loves us. It's through what Jesus did on the cross. So, Let's be really clear on that. The second thing we need to be really clear is that evil rages against the faithful, but we don't resign ourselves to fatalism. We pray. And this is really clear in this story, right? Herod takes off James's head, puts Peter in jail, but the church earnestly prays. All through the story of Acts, all through Christian history, all through the larger story we read in Scripture, it is just true. Evil rages against the faithful. And sometimes we, perhaps because of <clears throat> where we live, we can forget that. We can forget that there's a real enemy, that enemies are vicious, that evil rampages, that there's an attempt to destroy what God has done. That we are, in a very real sense, but a different sense than we expect, we are in a very real sense, we are in a war. And in a war where there are casualties. And so when we look around us, there, there's, there's things that go wrong in the world that aren't, aren't, aren't good. It's because we have an enemy and, and he's trying to destroy the good things that God has done. We're in the midst of a battlefield. And we need to be really clearly, uh, clear, clear, clear on that. Um, we, we, we know in Scripture the devil is depicted as a roaring lion, lion going around seeking who he can devour. And we're told that the, the, the war that we're in is not a fight against flesh and blood enemies because that's always been the struggle, right? I just finished reading a, a, a nice, beautiful overview of, of the first 1,500 years of, of, of the church history. And uh, one of the constant temptations the church had is at what point do you take up a sword to defend the faith? Let me ask you a rhetorical question. At what point should you take up the sword to defend the Christian faith? Never. And that's the way of Jesus. But the church always has struggled. At what point do we decide, you people should become Christians, therefore, if you don't accept baptism, we're going to kill you. Which happened. That's how a lot of the Nordic peoples... Now, if some of you are descendants of the Nords, you know, Norwegians and Swedes... Well, I guess it worked. But, you know, it's not the way you're supposed to do it, right? And so, we're always tempted to start fighting the war in flesh and blood. But Paul tells us in Ephesians, this is not a war that you fight in flesh and blood. This is a war you fight in the principalities, and the powers against spiritual darkness. And how do you fight it, friends? You fight it through prayer. You fight it through love. You fight it through the same way Jesus fought it, which is through self-sacrificial giving giving of yourself, and, and often suffering as a result. I'm going to move a little faster, actually, so I'll leave it there. Oh, well, you know, I'm going to say this, and then I'll just move on. There's two temptations we have when we're facing the fact that evil rages. One is to huddle and hide, just to kind of cower in fear. 
That's a temptation that we can have. And the other one is to, I've already alluded to it, but it's to fight fire with fire. Well, if they're going to try to kill us, we'll kill them first, right? Or, or, you know, less dramatically, just to begin to use the methods that the world is using, that the enemy is using. But we've been given our weapons. Our weapons are self-sacrificial love, prayer, earnestly seeking for God's will to be done. And so we don't fight fire with fire. We fight the enemy the way that Jesus did. Resist, but through prayer. The third thing we got to know is this. God uses evil for his good purposes. This is true. You can see it all over the place. He uses evil for his purposes, but we don't resign ourselves to fatalism. We pray. The response is the same, but perhaps a little, little different. Because you see, our temptation here is that we'll either, and you, you know, if you've been around people that try to figure this stuff out, you realize that there's directions people go when they're wrestling through, how is God at work in the midst of evil? How is God using evil for his good purposes? One temptation is to see, somehow see the evil as though it's good. To deny, essentially, that it is evil. And, Theologians and philosophers have been known to do this, to actually sort of think, well, if God can use it for good, then it must be good. And that's not true. And there's nothing in Scripture that would suggest that. So the one temptation is to see somehow as though the evil is good. And the other one is to just deny it or, or stop resisting it as though, well, it's all God's will anyway. Kind of like the Muslims. Inshallah, right? It's all, all as God wills. Like, no, actually, that's not the example the church has given us. God can use evil. He can turn it to good. But it's not because evil is good. It's because God is good. And we resist evil by trusting God and praying to Him and calling out for Him to respond by gathering together and doing war, resisting, but also trusting God in the midst of that, that He is somehow able to do something amazing, something marvelous. He really can take the manure of our lives and make beautiful compost. And things can grow out of it. That's the kind of God that we have. The image of trust in this passage is beautiful. Notice how Peter is sleeping so soundly that when he is woken up by an angel and released from prison, he's in a trance. I like to think of it also as he was woken from a deep sleep. And you know how confusing it can be when you're woken from a deep sleep? There's a sense in which he's trusting. He's fast asleep. In another story we'll read in, uh, I don't know, a couple months maybe, a few weeks, uh, Paul, he's in prison in a place called Philippi. Instead of sleeping, he has a worship service with his buddy Silas. The place is rocking. Things change because of that. Well, we'll get to that story. But we can truly trust, not resign ourselves to fatalism, but pray, because God can use evil for his good purposes. The fourth thing we've got to know when we're facing evil is that God is a judging God. And we're thankful for that. You know, I know in common conversation, it's easy to say, yeah, I don't know, like this idea of God being judgmental, it seems a little judgy to me. The truth is, we are so, so thankful that God is a God who judges. Because when you step back and think about it, what would it mean if the evil actions... If, if the wicked things that people have done down through history and even today, what would it mean if God just went, eh? What would that mean? It would mean there's no justice. And people just get away with murder, literally, or other things. And, and God just, meh, whatever. 
And that's not what we get in the Scripture revealed through Jesus is not a God who goes, meh. It's a God who actually judges evil, judges sin. And that means there is justice in this world. Now, it doesn't always come on our timetable. The interesting thing about this story, Herod being struck down with a sickness, hauled off stage and dying from worms, quite vivid, is it sort of like a little foretaste. But normally, we don't see that. We don't see judgment. Part of the reason we don't see judgment is because God is intentionally delaying judgment. Because He wants people to turn away from their sin and experience forgiveness and freedom. He even wanted that for Herod. He would rather have people turn and follow Him and receive life and forgiveness and freedom. He'd rather have that. And so He delays, He delays, He delays. And so the message that we preach is actually there's already been a judgment served on your sin. It was served by Jesus. But you have to be willing to accept that judgment. You have to be willing to say, I can now see what Jesus has done. For me, he's taken my sin. He was judged in my place and received that. Because at the end of the day, judgment will be served either by him or by us. Either by him or by you. And the message of the good news of Jesus is that, yes, there is a judge, but he's giving you time to respond. Uh, just a few chapters ago, when uh, Peter opened up with his speech before Cornelius, he, he reminded one of the things that's consistent in the good news story is that God has appointed Jesus as a judge. Peter himself said, God has appointed Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. A judge is now in place, and so what are you going to do with that? Now, let's be clear, we're not the judges, and aren't you thankful for that? I'm not the judge. I'm not the one who brings the judgment. But, let's also be clear, Part of our witness is we point to the one who is. Now, it's such a beautiful story because at the very same time we're pointing to the one who has been installed as a judge, we're also telling people, but that judge, by the way, that judge, he's the one who got off the stand, as it were, and took the punishment that you deserved. I mean, he's the one that hung on the cross for you. So this isn't an unfeeling judge. This is a judge who wants desperately for you to receive a not guilty. He wants you to receive an acquittal. He wants you to receive a full pardon. This is the judge that you have to deal with, but you do. And so we bear witness to that. And we remember and we give praise to God that there is judgment, that evil will be reckoned with, that the world will be set right. And I think that's one of the things that is so important when we're wrestling with, sometimes harm has been done. You know, there's Kids abused and, and, there's, and there's, there's actions taken where it's unjust. Lies have been told. And you've been slandered and there's been things that have gone off the rails and you think, ah, it ain't right, but I don't know how to make it right. And in fact, I'll never be able to make it right. But to be reminded that God will make things right. There is a judge. A merciful judge. But a true, just judge. And there's times, I think, in history and in our own lives where we have to say, wow, I hold on to that in faith because I cannot see how that's going to be reckoned with. I cannot see how judgment will be reckoned with what, you know, the atrocities that have been committed. I can't see that. But I believe that God is a just judge and He will reckon with that fully and properly to the extent where when we see it happen, we will give glory to God because it will be truly amazing how God will make it right. 
All right. The fifth thing we got to know when we're facing any kind of struggle, but particular struggle related to the mission that God has given us, is that God is faithful to fulfill his promise. I mean, that's actually Luke's point in this story. He wants us to see that in spite of evil raging, in spite of you know, leaders of the church losing their heads, and, 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 and we've already seen the story unfolding, people, persecution like a hammer comes down in the church and boom, they go everywhere, but nothing is stopping God's promise from being fulfilled. God is faithful and His Word continues to spread like wildfire, like dandelions, spreading throughout the known world, like sourdough. It's working. You can hear it bubbling. And it's coming out everywhere you look. Persecution can't thwart God's promise. Struggles cannot stop what God intends for you. The good He intends to bring out of your life He will use the struggle that you're experiencing to mature you, to grow you up in Him, to to make you more and more each day, to make us more and more each day that dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And Luke wants us to see that. The Word of God continues to spread. And there are many new believers. That's how he ends the story. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, because He sits at the right hand of the Father, because the Holy Spirit has come and is in us, the tide has turned. It's turned. Ah, oh, evil rage, yes. But the tide has turned. A new king's on the throne. His, his church is growing. And nothing, nothing, nothing can stop that. That's what we're to see. And so... I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what particular thing you're carrying. I don't know whether you're worried about family or whether you're, you're struggling in your own life of faith or whether you've even decided to follow Jesus. I don't know where you are, but what I know is this. In all of the confusion that we can carry and the difficulty that we can experience, we've got to clear that stuff away and think, what do I really know is true? And these five things, friends, you can hold on to those. They're true. They're really true really true. And God is going to continue to bring His kingdom both in our lives and in the world until the day He rolls it all up and says, now that's a beautiful thing. Justice is done. Mercy flows. Heaven and earth meet. Resurrection happens. And we live the life that God intended all of us to live. Let's pray. Jesus that you rose again from the dead, that you turned back death, astonishes us. That you were actively at work among us. We give you glory for that. We recognize that it is easy for us to interpret difficulties around us and begin to think that you're not in control or begin to think that you aren't faithful or begin to think that your love is shifted, that the enemy's winning, that surely there is no justice in this world. We can think all these confused thoughts and I, I thank you for the reminder from your word of what is really true. You are faithful. You are just. You are loving. You are able to turn evil for good. And you have defeated evil on the cross, cross and are now completing your work by your Holy Spirit in us and in the world. We just give you praise and glory for that. You really are the way maker. You really are the miracle worker. You are the promise keeper. That is who you are. We give you praise. We give you glory. In your name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey. Whether you're finding Jesus for the first time, or you have been following Him for years. If you have been listening for a while, perhaps you're wondering how you can support the church financially. To find out, please go to ericksoncovenant.ca and click on the Donate tab. Thank you for being part of this journey with us. Every day we are seeking to help people to find and follow Jesus.